Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, I'd like to look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. We've been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John, and this is the fourth miracle of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, but this is interesting. It's the only one that all four Gospel writers record. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this miracle alone, they all four record this. And so I love that that happened because when I read all four accounts, it really filled out the story. There's a richness to some of the details that one guy brings up that another does not. It's like when you missed an event and you ask four of your different friends to tell you about it, and you get four similar but really subtly different accounts that give you more of a sense that you were there vicariously through them. So I want to read John's account this morning, and it comes from John 6, 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near, and when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I don't know why it says working. Sorry about that. As I said, this is the only one of the miracles recorded by all four gospel writers, and there is so much in here, we could talk about it for days. I'm going to zero in on one narrow aspect of this story, and it may not be the one most people are expecting, but I think it's a valid and important aspect for us to hear today because I think it's clear to all of us that our world is broken and something has to be done. But when we think about it, it's very quickly overwhelming, isn't it? 
I mean, how many of you have really sat and thought about the condition of our world, the state of things today? How many of you obsess over it, lose sleep over it? Really, when you start to think about it, you realize when you zoom out of your own small snow globe existence and look out beyond at the world, things are a mess right now. And the more you look, the more you think, the heavier it becomes because it's a mess at a level that's sort of like, you know, have you, has your house ever been in a condition where you could normally just clean up your house, but has it ever been so messy, you just look at it and you go, I can't. There's no way. It's just too messy. It's too dirty. I don't even know where to start. I think this miracle is recorded for us in part for God to break through that discouragement and show us how he moves when we're overwhelmed by what we see. It starts out with these words, sometime after this. And that's a very vague phrase in the Greek. It doesn't mean that what happens now occurs immediately after what happened before. But what it says is there was an interval of time between the last thing that was recorded and what you're about to hear. And during that interval of time, Jesus and his team were going through some really, really significant stuff. This is the value of having Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write about it. According to Matthew, one of the pieces of news they had just received before this was that John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, had been unjustly executed. In fact, he had been beheaded by King Herod for no good reason at all. It was a personal squabble an issue inside the royal house, but John the Baptist lost his head over it. He was martyred for speaking up and being righteous. And so here is Jesus and his team having received this kind of news. And then Mark and Luke both record for us that prior to this event, this miracle, Jesus had dispatched his 12 disciples to go on a traveling missionary trip, an itinerant ministry. So he basically said to them, you 12, go out in pairs. I don't trust you to go solo. You guys are still not there yet. So go out in pairs, go from door to door, village to village, and do what you've seen me doing. Tell people the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, meet needs, bless people, show them the love of God, and then come back and tell me how it went. So they did it. And crazy things were happening, and they came back absolutely exhausted, but excited to share with Jesus everything they had experienced and all the things that God had done through them. John records for us in chapter 5, we just heard about this last week, that Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath, which is a big no-no for these guys because this man had picked up his mat, crippled all his life. Suddenly he can walk, and he picked up the mat he used to lay on as a beggar, and he carried it home, and they had a problem with that. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So they began to rise up against Jesus, and they entered into a conflict that would not lessen at all over the course of Jesus' life. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you guys know that tragic news can be so draining? When you hear really shocking bad news, it can obsess you. It can just knock the wind right out of you. And you know that nonstop ministry, when you're just working, 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 even if the work is fulfilling, things are happening, it is so hard to press, press, press without a rest. That can also be so draining. And all of us know that open conflict with others just saps our energy, doesn't it? It doesn't matter how physically healthy you are, how wealthy you are, how everything else is going. When you're in conflict with people, everything else, like 
Food loses its taste. The world loses its color. You just find it hard to keep going because it drains everything in you. Any one of these things by itself would leave you empty. But Jesus and his team had endured all three in a very short period of time. Tragic news. Non-stop go, go, go ministry and open conflict with people who had power and resources and would not let up. Have you ever had times like that in your life? Where it just feels like this is your soul? This is your heart? Have you ever had that kind of day where you just go, you know what? I am just spent. I don't know if you ever saw that um, Saturday Night Live skit about millennials where the girl says, I'm literally trying to can and I can't. Do you ever feel like that? I'm trying to can and I can't. That's such a today statement. I just can't. I've had days like that. I know you have where you are so empty. If you tried your hardest, there would be nothing left to give anyone else. You're just like, I'm done, guys. How do you respond on a day like that when someone comes up to you in the midst of your depletion and your exhaustion and says, could you help me with something? I need something. How do you respond when you are at rock bottom, you are drained empty, and someone else comes up to you and says, I still need you? How do you feel? How do you respond? I think it's an easy one. Most of us in our flesh, it's very clear how we respond. Get out of my face right now. I can't. Right now is a dangerous time for you to be in my face asking me for stuff. Get lost if you value breathing. Have you ever been in that mood? Some of you are in that mood right now. I can see it. You're in that place right now. And when you're in that place, I think one of the questions that we, we may wrestle with is, am I actually a loving person? A lot of us claim we're loving, but... How do you know if you're truly loving? And even more importantly, how do you know if the love that you have for other people is the love of God in you or just human love? Human love is not without value. It's powerful. But what's really powerful, world-changing, is the love of God inhabiting a human being. Now, I know that I have a capacity to love people, but what I really want as a pastor, as a Christian, is the ability to love other people with the love of God because the love of Dave Lee has like a shelf life. It has a limit. And if I don't get a little downtime at some point, the love of Dave Lee will turn to something else. This is a little symbol that my wife and I have, a little secret. When we can tell the other person is being a little catty, I just go like this. And she goes, oh, 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 okay. I just could do a little, little, little this. I think one of the clearest indicators that we've shifted from our love to the love of God in us is how we respond when we are at a place of depletion and someone else asks us to serve them. Most human beings can serve others, love others out of their surplus, but it's divine love alone that lets us serve someone when we need to be served. Now, I don't say that to make anyone feel guilty or ashamed. I'm saying we have to constantly recognize there is a big difference between the love we have and the love God has. We think it's similar. Like, yeah, I love like God loves. We just begin to scratch the surface. 
at how crazy and radical the love of God is because it doesn't get annoyed and run out. It's unending. It is new every day. The love of God is a mystery. It is a force more powerful than anything you know. And if we're filled with it, even when we are on empty, God still can give through us. And that's a wonder. And that's one of the things Jesus is showing is, I know how you all are feeling. I'm in that place too. And in fact, the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what they say is Jesus wisely saw the condition of his team. He saw how he was feeling. And what he said to these guys is, hey, I think we need a little retreat. It's been a hard couple of weeks. Let's get away from everyone, get on a boat, cross the lake, ditch these crowds, and let's just, the 13 of us, have a little downtime. A little time for rest. A little relaxation, maybe some reflection. That's a wise thing to do when you're feeling depleted. Don't just keep pressing. Make the attempt to engage in some self-care, to get away from everything. So that's what Jesus is trying to do. So they're in a boat, but the crowds, here's the thing about need. When you have pain and when you're in need, you don't see anyone else's pain or need. All you see is your own, and you're desperate for help. You know how they always tell you a drowning person, when you try to help them, they will use you as a flotation device. And I've shared from this pulpit before, I had that experience firsthand where I had to punch someone in the face to keep them from drowning me because I was trying to save them and they were trying to use me as like a... And I was going to die out there. So I had a... I apologize. I punched her in the face so that we could both calm down and we could save her. And it happened. People who are desperate, they can't see you. They can only see their own desperation. And they will be drawn to you if you show even an ounce of openness or kindness or care. It's one of the reasons we try to protect ourselves. I see that you're lonely and no one likes you and you're off on the side of the cafeteria. I see that it's hard for you. I know that I should probably walk over and say hi, but once I do, you're going to be like gum stuck on my shoe. You'll be like following me like a faithful puppy and I have to be your only friend and I'm not ready for that. So I see you. I'm just going to pretend I don't see you. Because we're afraid of even taking a little step because it's overwhelming. Once I show even a little bit, you're going to latch on to me because right now you're in a place of great need. So what happens is Jesus and his team are crossing on a boat, but the crowds are like, they're leaving. And so they run around the shore, a massive crowd of people, and they catch up and they intercept them as they're landing like, oh, doggone it. How they know? So they, they had run around the shore and intercepted Jesus and his crew. So that's the setting of this miracle. Jesus and his team are just exhausted. Like, oh my gosh, they, they followed us. They got to the retreat center before we did, and they want ministry time. So Jesus looks up, and here, if I were on Jesus' crew that day, here's what I'd be thinking. Please, please, please say, uh, Peter, you go cause a distraction. We're going to ditch this crowd, all right? Go run through the crowd without your tunic on. They'll stare at you and we'll all just, and we'll meet up with you over there in the mountain. I, I'd be hoping Jesus says something like that because when you're tired and you see like a crowd of maybe 15,000 people waiting in line for something from you, all you can think about is we got to get out of here. But they've been around Jesus long enough to know that's just not how he rolls. Jesus looks at that crowd and he goes, hey, And it says specifically here, not in any other ones, he called Philip over specifically. Maybe because Philip was the rational guy, the realist. He goes, hey, Phil, come here. 
How are we going to feed all these people? They look so hungry. In those days, it was their custom, and thank God we're past those days to some degree. They only counted men in a crowd. Like, women and children were not real. So offensive. So 5,000 men in this crowd, it would be a conservative estimate to say around 15,000 people were gathered there. And Jesus, have you ever seen a crowd of 15,000? In conferences I've been to, I've seen that. And if someone goes, hey, um, Dave, between you and me, what do you got? We've got to feed all these people. I'd be like, so when Jesus says it, it's almost hilarious. And if I were part of Jesus' crew that day, two things would have been raging in my mind. Two questions. The first would be, how is that our problem? No one told these fools to chase us around the shore and intercept us. They came running here with no food in their satchels. How is that our problem? And I feel that strongly, that that feeling. Like, why is that suddenly my burden? Why are you asking us like it's our responsibility? But Jesus unflinching goes, it is. Who's going to feed them? They're here for us, but they're hungry. I see it, and it moves me. How are we going to feed them? And the second question is fine. Even if I accept that somehow, because you're like that, it is our problem. It's an impossible problem. How on earth can the 13 of us scrounge up enough money to feed all these people? That's 15,000 people, man. Not only that, it says this is a desolate place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record where they landed was not near any village or city. It was just an open shore. So even if you had a million dollars, there's no store. It's like when you watch The Walking Dead, and if you found a big bag of cash, what good would it do you? When you have money enough, but no food supply, there's still a problem. So there goes, Jesus, even if we had the money, which we don't, and Judas is probably like, yeah, seriously, we don't have enough. There's no place to get food. You've created an impossible burden What are we supposed to do about this? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt those two protests raging in your spirit? How is that my problem? Why do I have to care about it? Especially when some of the contribution for that problem was that they did it to themselves. They're not just innocent victims. They ran after him without thinking about food, and now their hunger is on us. So Philip rationally answers this way. Uh, Lord, so I've done the math. Um, it would take more than half a year's wages. And the figure that's in the other Gospels is 200 denarii. One denarii a day was the typical worker's wage. So 200 denarii would be about eight months' income. I did the math based on the average household income in America. And it took about eight months' worth of that. What I came up with is for a crowd of 15,000, that would still be just about a dollar and 25 cents per person. What can you use? What can you feed a crowd of 15,000 with a buck 25 each? Like maybe a Twinkie, maybe a Goo Goo cluster. I don't know. You can't fill their bellies with anything meaningful for a dollar 25. So Philip does the math. He's a realist. He's rational. He goes, um, Lord, listen, there's no way this will work. I don't know why spreadsheet guys talk like that to me in my head, but there's no way this is going to work. 
It's impossible. You've created an impossible scenario for us. And even if we step over to this side and join you in feeling the burden, we cannot imagine how on earth anything could be done about it. It's just too big a need, and our supply is too limited. We're defeated before we even start. But here's the funny thing about when God lays a burden on our hearts. When he makes us to see something which we didn't see before, and then he makes it so that we can't unsee it anymore. A holy burden. Something that comes from God that says, I'm going to make you care about this in a way that is not easy to shake off. Now, some of us have never experienced a burden like that. Some of us just were waiting for that day, but when it comes, you'll know it. When a burden is from God, it's like a coal burning in your heart. No matter what you do to shake it off, you can't. It stays with you. It lingers. It won't let go of you. You're like, why do I care about this so much? Why do I cry every time I think about it? Why do I get so angry when I see this not being addressed? And that's a holy burden. When it comes from God... Even when you see how big the problem is and how small and limited you are, you still can't shake the feeling, I have to do something. I can't just leave that alone. Has God ever given you a burden like that? Shown you something in the world that is so broken, so painful, and you can't shake it. It haunts you. And there's this argument you're having with your own voice. Hey, self, you should do something. Self, seriously, don't be ridiculous. What could we do? And so often, we talk ourselves out of it before we even start because we see the largeness of the problem and the smallness of our supply, and we think, okay, I feel something, but that's frustrating because there's very little realistically I could do. But when God burdens us, that's the start of something powerful. I love what Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, said. I met to one of the executives at World Vision Canada, and recently I met with him at the headquarters in Toronto. And I was just amazed. This is just one of the many um, places where, where uh, World Vision sort of headquarters in an area. It's a massive organization. They are doing so much in the world to alleviate human suffering. And I see the scale of it. Just this, um, this building was amazing. And I'm, I'm sitting here talking to this guy, and, he, and I see this thing on the wall. It's Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. And here is the prayer that started it all. He simply said, let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. I've been thinking about that ever since I saw it, because I wonder what... <laughs> What would it be like if I, in the quiet of the early morning, consistently just prayed that simple prayer? God, I care about a lot of things. I'm agitated about a lot of things. But what I really want is to have a heart broken for the stuff that's breaking your heart. I want to feel it. Like I want my spirit to be weighed down and agitated by the things that matter most to you. I want to experience a holy burden, one that I can't just shake off. And when God grants something like that to us, there's amazing power in it. We're not daunted. We're not defeated. Even when we see how big the problem is, how small our supply is, when God gives us that, something is going to happen. 
something is going to happen. So in the midst of a crowd of 15,000, and Phil has just taken out, sorry, Phil, I know when I say Phil instead of Philip, it throws you off. But Phil's got his Excel spreadsheet. He goes, their numbers don't work at all. And then Andrew goes, hey, look at this little boy over here. He's got a lunch. And the kid's like, oh, God, and I should have not See, he's got five barley loaves. That's an interesting detail that only John records. Barley loaves were like the worst food. They were what poor people ate. If you, if you were like starving to death, someone said, I have a barley loaf, you're like, uh, let's see if something better comes along. That's what a barley loaf is. It's just like, it's like sawdust, okay? And then he had two small fish. So not much of a meal, but Andrew laughably goes, hey, Lord, look at that. This little boy has a lunch. Now, it doesn't quite record for us why Andrew points this little boy out. There's two ways of looking at it. The the cynical way is Andrew's going, all right, Lord, let's solve this problem. Here's what we're working with. We got a little boy and a stupid lunch. Now, if we just had a million little boys and their stupid lunches, we might make a dent, right? That's what he, maybe that's what, the, the cynical me will go, He's just trying to prove to Jesus how impossible the situation is. But, if I give the benefit of the doubt, Andrew was the first disciple called. He had been with Jesus the longest. He saw more of Jesus than the other guys. And maybe he understood this is not just an ordinary guy. If anyone could do something amazing with a little boy's lunch, it's Jesus. So, it's a small thing, but it's a thing. He points everyone's attention to a little boy in his lunch. And don't get the wrong idea. We don't know for sure that this little boy said, I see the Messiah and I'm going to make an offering. That's the flannelgram. Is this boy in faith? We don't know that. And don't think these guys just want to be, hey, stupid, give us your lunch. And they didn't mug him either. They had money enough to buy five barley loaves and two fish. I'm sure they compensated him fairly for his lunch. Kid, I'll give you 50 bucks for that lunch. And they hand it to Jesus. Eight months' salary wouldn't even put a bite in everyone's mouth. But this little boy's lunch is a start. I think when we look at what we're holding in our hands and we look at how broken and messed up the world is, it's very tempting to quit before we start. Phrases like drop in the bucket, scratching the surface, Token gestures come to mind. When I see the scale of brokenness, when I think about violence in the inner city, and I think it's not just because of gun laws, it's because of the violence in the heart of people. It's because of the home life. It's about growing up without a father. It's about all these things. And when you start to look at it, you you start, maybe if you're a school teacher, you realize if you're a school teacher in in a difficult area, you look at a kid who's going, he's bad at math. And then you scratch past the surface. He's not just bad at math. He's got no advantage in this life. Everything outside of school conspires against him. And it's societal brokenness. It's too much. You want to try to up this kid's math grade, but the more you dig in, the more you realize math is the tip of the iceberg. The mountain is too much. What can we really do besides gestures and symbolic acts about this? And so, though God puts a burden on our hearts, very often we get realistic and we talk ourselves out of it and we surrender the war before firing a single shot. 
And in the midst of an onslaught coming against him, Andrew pulls out a little Derringer peace shooter and goes, hey, we got this at least. And Jesus goes, give me that. No matter how small you feel in the face of a big challenge, I want you to know that even the smallest act of faith honors God if he put that burden in your heart and you're saying, I'm not much, but I'm not going to sit here. I'm not going to be so defeated by the scale of the problem that my choice is to sit here and do nothing in spite of the fact that God himself put a burden on my heart. I'm not going to do that. He gave me a giant vision and I can't shake it. And I've got a tiny supply. But even that, I'll start there. I'm going to do something. I find that the biggest movements in this world began with one person And one small act, and God did something with that. I've had the privilege of talking to a number of people who are at the head of major kingdom movements in this world. People who are sitting on top of massive organizations that are doing so much good work. And I've had the privilege of sitting one-on-one with them asking, tell me, did you ever, and I always love asking, did you ever imagine all this? They're like, no. No one can imagine all this. You are megalomaniac if when you start out, you're picturing 80 different offices all around the world. You're crazy. What I felt was a burden I couldn't shake. And I put my head down. I looked at what I had. I looked up at God and said, let's do something. And it began 30 years ago with one small act of faith. And look what God has done with that. I want to introduce you to a colleague of mine. I wouldn't call him a friend yet. We've met several times, but we're not buds. But he inspires me. This guy named Eugene Cho and his wife, Minhee. He pastored for years in the Seattle area. One of our former church members moved out there and joined his church, connected me with him. And I was impressed right away by his story and his heart. Eugene and Minhee, in the early 2000s, started to bear a burden for global poverty. They couldn't shake how comfortable they were and how uncomfortable so much of the world was. It was bothering them. And the more they dug into it and researched, the more they realized the plight of the world's poor is worse than we we let on in the news. It's very bad out there, and it's getting worse for billions. Now, this is a Korean-American pastor in a small church in Seattle and his wife, And they're looking at global poverty and going, something has to be done. It's like when you and your wife are trying to buy a house and your kids come and break the piggy bank. Will this help? So cute. So inspiring. Maybe we'll buy a shingle on the roof. Maybe. On sale at Menards. So you're sitting on top of a mountain of need with a drop of supply but you can't shake it. That's what they felt. So they began to pray, and they began to travel and look around and ask, and then God led them to this crazy decision. They decided prayerfully that they would give one year salary to the cause of meeting the needs of the global poor. So one year, they would take no pay, live on nothing, and give everything away to the poor. Now, you can't just make a decision like that. 
It's not like he's a baller with a trust fund and goes, ah, it's easy. I got 300 million in the bank. They had to prepare for three solid years. They were downsizing. They were selling off large capital investments they had. They were clearing out retirement funds. They were saving, scrimping, couponing, budgeting. And at the end of three years, concerted effort by the whole family to reduce, to do with less, to simplify, save, sell. They were ready. His annual income at the time was $68,000, and they devoted the full amount and decided to live without pay for one year, and they had arranged things so that they could. And in 2009, they pulled the trigger. And that year, instead of just writing a big check to the Red Cross or something, they used that money to begin exploring what the needs are and following that money to the places, and they began to do something that brought their hearts where their treasure was. Something remarkable happened. They realized that that one family and that one annual income could actually start to make a dent. And the first difference was made in them. The scale of the problem became smaller because the greatness of their God and their decision to do even something small began to stir up something in them that wouldn't be repressed. Afterwards, they decided to form an organization. And remember, this is all while he's a full-time pastor. He's a lead pastor of a growing church. They formed an organization called One Day's Wages. And he said, now, I can't walk around like a crazy person going, would you give up one year of income? Everyone's going to be like, get out of my house. So he said, let's do it this way. Would you give the equivalent of one day's pay? Figure out what that is for you. Take your W-2 line one and divide it by 365 and give, devote that amount and let's pool that together. Let's crowdsource it and let's do something about poverty in community together. It's a beautiful concept. Wish I thought of it. It's awesome. So he begins visiting with people, coffee shop conversations, one after another. And pretty soon this thing becomes a movement. Guys like Jeremy Lin get on, and all of a sudden, a bunch of other guys get on. Today, they have 20,242 members regularly devoting one day's pay on a regular basis to meeting the needs of the global poor. Their $68,000 seed investment has led to nearly $7 million donated since 2009. And because they're very careful how they apply this money, lots of accountability, lots of leanness to their organization, nearly 650,000 people have been very directly impacted by the ministry of one day's wages. They have an army of volunteers who believe in the cause, who have now been infected by the same holy burden which the Lord placed on their hearts. They're doing it in community. They're doing it together. Today, their work spans the globe, and they're addressing some of the most critical issues of our day, maternal health, children's education, clean water and sanitation, human trafficking. And this is so important in developing nations, the empowerment of girls. When you ask Eugene, did you imagine all of this? Just theoretically, in the back of my mind, I was sure it could could be a possibility. But I didn't try to get here by design. I just obeyed the Lord in each moment where he burdened me. And he did something I couldn't expect. I share this because their story doesn't have to be unique in the kingdom. I think God is regularly touching 
his people's hearts with holy burdens. When he does it, it's beautiful. Because what he says is, I'm going to make you care about this at a supernatural level. You won't be able to shake it. You'll try, and you won't be able to. And no matter how many people tell you, what can you really do? There will be doubters and haters all the time. Come on. You're just one person. You're a kid. You're an, you know, it's, it's funny how we give no expectation for people on the lowest and the highest ends of age. We expect that young people and old people can't do anything. Don't let anyone tell you that you're just this or you're just that. If God lays a holy burden on your heart and you step out in even one small, seemingly insignificant act of faith, you will be amazed what he can do through that. Because that small step of faith will honor him. And he showed you what breaks his heart for a reason. Not so you could feel bad or grow angry, but so that in faith you can be a witness to the unbelievable multiplying power of God in his kingdom. If you got the glory and you got all the credit, nothing would happen that is eternal. But when you begin to step out in faith, God can do things through you that will bring him glory and make him visible to a world of doubters. Let me close with this. You look at verses 11 through 13, and what stands out right away is the language of abundance. Jesus did not give everybody one chicken McNugget. Please share the sauce. There's so much abundance language here. Everybody ate as much as they wanted. In fact, when you have leftovers, that is clear physical evidence that everybody ate as much as they could because you know how we are. We are like horses. You put food in front of us, we will eat until I swallow and nothing happens. Food is just right there. That's when we stop eating, most of us, right? So when you have leftovers, that means everybody stopped being hungry. They looked at it and said, oh, free food, but I can't. I can't eat anymore. And they collected 12 basketfuls after everybody, everybody ate to their fill. There were still 12 basketfuls of leftovers. It seems like God always exceeds our expectations and our imaginations. He especially does that when we take our eyes off of ourselves and lift up our eyes and see the world around us and say, God, my life may still be a mess. I may still be in need, but you show me something in the world around me. And while I wait for you to come show up in my personal life, I won't sit around feeling sorry for myself. I will step out of faith and I will do something about this burden you gave me. I'm going to do something to honor you and obey you, to exercise faith. And so often in that, God shows up even for us personally. Now, obviously, the point of this miracle is not just about full bellies. Every belly filled will need filling again in about four hours. It's not just about creating more good and justice in this world. Every immigrant that gets past the gate still has to become a citizen of heaven. Every outcast who finally finds acceptance still needs to find acceptance before God through Jesus Christ. The purpose of this miracle is not just to say what I care about most are bellies being filled, but that through that, the greatest human need on earth will be met. 
The greatest human need we have is not for food or justice or shelter. It is to know God and how deeply we are loved, to worship the one who made us, to know that he is our eternal destiny. That is the greatest human need. Every other human need comes second to that. It may come first in what we do for people, but it comes second to the greatest goal of God, which is your biggest problem is not that you're hungry or that you're on the outside looking in. Your biggest problem is that you're on the outside of me and I want you in. That's what he's after. I'm not going to preach a second sermon. Wait three weeks. In early November, we're going to talk about what this really means. That Jesus filled people to overflowing with bread when they were hungry. And in just a few verses down the road, he will say to the people, I am the bread of life. And I am the living water. We will explore what that means in a few weeks. But for today, I believe what God led me to do here is to spark some inspiration in us that when he lays a holy burden on you and shows you the greatness of the world's need and the smallness of your supply, instead of saying, I can't, you will say he can. And what little I can do, I'll do it. And we'll see what happens from there. Now, I hope that if God has laid a holy burden on you, then his word this morning will have inspired and prompted you to respond to him, even if the thing you do seems hilarious and small in the face of the problems. Because that honors him, and he will honor that. I want to invite the the praise team to come back up, and I want to invite you to just pray with me for a minute. None of this eclipses the real needs we have. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were still tired, still depleted, still hungry. And God would meet that need in time. He would. He cared about that. But look at what God does to them when they are spent and empty. This is our God. When there's nothing left to give, he can still give more. And that doesn't mean he stopped caring about you. He doesn't look at you as a tool. He looks at you as his beloved. It's a sign of the love of God that he shares his burdens with you. That he lets you, even for a moment, feel what he feels about our world. And if anyone's told you you can't make a difference, don't listen. God put that burden on your heart for a reason. And if he's given you that burden, it doesn't matter if you're 12 or 120. He's waiting for you to do one small act of faith to show him you heard. Then watch what he does with that one small act. You may sit back 10 years later and marvel at the scale of what he did. So if he's got that burden on your heart, would you pray that he will give you the faith to do something about it? And if you've never felt a burden in this life for anyone but yourself, Would you pray Bob Pierce's prayer with me this morning? God, I don't want to end my life a self-centered person. Break my heart for the stuff that breaks your heart. Break my heart. 
Let's pray for just a minute, and then the band will lead us in a final song of worship, and we'll close. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.